Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Welcome to the third episode of Still Watching Mayor of Easttown. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us for the first time on Still Watching, what Richard and I like to do is pick a show we're watching kind of closely, a little obsessively, break it down week by week. Sometimes we talk to folks who worked on the show, sometimes we don't. This week we have an interview with the uh, series director, Craig Zobel. So uh, that will happen at the end of our discussion of this episode, episode three, which is titled Enter Number Two. Um Actually, I kind of, maybe want to start there, Richard, before we even get to like listener emails or anything else. Um, do you know what the title of this episode is referencing? I don't. <laughs> me neither. No, me neither. Honestly, I was like, I, I watched this last rewatch I did of the episode. I watched like looking for what uh, that title might mean. And maybe that's her number of her jersey um is the only thing i could think of but um oh, i don't i don't i don't know anyway uh i'm sure our very bright very thoughtful listeners will have a better idea of what enter number two means um i couldn't figure it out 
But uh, please email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com if you know the answer. We got a ton of emails, a ton of great emails, actually, um, between episode two and three. So please keep them coming. Um, We got a few corrections, a few jokes, all sorts of stuff. Richard's going to hit some, a few, and then we'll we'll maybe talk about, I don't know, some of the unifying themes we saw around these emails. Richard, what do you got for us? Yeah, before we get into the emails that were really about, like, theories about who, who did it, um, there were a couple ones kind of more thematic or sort of about the the, the filmmaking that people mm-hmm. were kind of wanted to write in about. Um, so Maureen sent us a nice, thoughtful email. We had spoken last week, you and I, Joanna, about the sort of tribalism in the in this town that we're seeing kind of, we had sort of diagnosed it as being along gender lines. I believe you spoke to Brad Inglesby about similar sort of the, the, the way that these social these societies are sort of organized in this town. Um, so Marine kind of uh, wrote in reference to that. She said, so I agree with your tribalism discussion, but not sure they run along female male as much as family. Since you mentioned several times, wanted to, uh, I wanted to make sure you didn't miss that mayor says to Lori, she wanted Kenny's cousins with her for notification. John and Billy are Kenny and Aaron's family in a declining town. Family drives things first, then other tribal divides layer in. Uh, you are both on the mark uh, ab- uh, about how they are balancing contradictions. Kate Winslet discussed with you in an interview. It's a big part of the story. Um, I expect it comes down to all the hats, identities we wear, whether we want to or not. Um, she goes on. There is another issue at play here, which I have never been able to decide. Is a Pennsylvania thing or a small town thing? But the show is doing well. The best way to describe it is compartmentalizations. Um, It's how a person gets respect in a small town for one part role and no respect for another. As much as Mayor gets badmouthed by her daughter, mother, friends, father of suspects, she is still a leader driver person everyone is looking towards for leadership. A colleague of mine visited Pittsburgh once and told me they never had uh, witnessed before where one minute they are in a boardroom and CEO John was most respect- was the most respected person in the room. And 30 minutes later, they are at a happy hour and you would have thought John was a line worker. So far, the show is doing a very good job of showing that. There is another component to small community leadership they are getting so right. Mayor never has said or verbally done anything that suggests she is the leader or has power. The most impressive part of the episode uh, was when she took charge without declaring she was in charge. Uh, I would argue that in most small towns, if you declare it, you probably don't deserve it. So um, Maureen then goes on to kind of break down the tribes that she sees Mayor being in, which is the head of household. She's the mother, grandmother, detective slash community leader, law enforcement, the basketball team. And the ex-wife, and which you know ties her into the parenting and grandparenting. Um, Marines, uh, Mayor's historic roles we haven't seen yet, but seem to be identities she's trying to move on from: our mother of a child on the spectrum, mother of a child who's died, mother of child who committed suicide. The whole first episode is so different on rewatch, with additional knowledge of Kevin. How different do you think Mayor was before Drew's birth and Kevin's death? Did Kevin's challenges dictate family focus? Friends raising ch- ch- children on the spectrum. Um, say har- the hardest part was when their daughter was in their 20s and wanted to date um, and they had pregnancy concerns. She moved out of their house many times throughout her 20s and 30s. Siobhan, Siobhan seems, uh, appears to be self-sufficient, uh, self-sufficient child because all the attention went to Kevin. Uh, she concludes, um, I'm fairly sure pre- uh, previous episodes or, or subsequent episodes will take on very different meaning after each episode. Um they have done a great job of letting us know the characters in the community, that they all have history and and then they connect the dots, but we won't be able to until we spend more time with them. 
the good news uh, is that I totally trust how the writers are choosing to let us in on the history. Not sure I want a flashback like Knowing Mayor from that from any other point in time. Yeah, Maureen does. This, uh, she did this other uh, really interesting follow up email where she identified Richard as the out of town author and um, Zabel, that's uh, Guy Pierce and Evan Peters characters, um, as the out of town detective, as these um, sort of figures that can come in and help us. You know, people have to constantly describe their relationship to those characters so that we understand what the relationships are, right? They would never right. say to each other, like, that's my cousin or whatever, but Mare has to say it to her partner, right? Or when she's on the date in this episode with Guy Pierce with with Richard, she's she's telling him a lot about what 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 happened with Kevin. And then we have a third piece introduced in this episode that helps us understand everything, and that is uh, Siobhan's documentary thing that she's working on about Kevin where she's right. describing her brother. Right. And, and, and Mare's conversation with the doctor last week was part of that. So it's all, there's all these really clever inlets built into the structure of the story that helps us understand these long, rich, deep dynamics. You know, Frank saying to Zabel, Oh, ask Mare who John is. He's her best friend's husband. Do you know what I mean? And, and mm-hmm. Zabel says something like, is there anyone you're not related to? And Mare's like, no, you know, and so it's this, it's this, just this cluster tangled knot of a town. And Brad Inglesby and, and all the other folks who wrote, worked on the show have provided us these little rivulets into it, which I really, appreciate because a clumsier writer would force these characters to say that stuff to each other. Yeah. You know what I mean? In a, in a way that would feel really clunky and awful. So, yeah. Yeah. Exposition is so difficult in Mm -hmm. dramatic writing and, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to clue the audience in somehow. And I think having outside characters, which is why a lot of times you do see narratives about an outsider coming into a a, a community, because that way you can explain the community without it being like, well, they would all know that about each other. Um, Yeah. So I think it is handled um, pretty well. I would say there was one clunky line in this episode um, is when Frank says, just like, I'm not scared to talk about our son, you know, or whatever. And it's like, okay. Like I, I know he was trying to make a point, but, uh, that felt maybe a little uh, on the nose uh, in a way that well, a lot of other stuff isn't. It's funny because I was uh, I was going to bring this up. One of our uh, one of our listeners um, was talking about how they thought Mare's inability to make eye contact with Frank in the first couple episodes was an indicator of Mare's sort of uh, super ability to read character that she knew that something was up with Frank. Mm. I disagree with that. Um, Not that, you know, I mean, we'll get to the Frank of it all in this episode, but I think that Mayor's inability to make eye contact with him is tied to her shame around what happened with her as a mother and with Kevin. I'm not saying she deserves to be ashamed, but I mean, I think we saw some of that in that conversation she had with the doctor about like, I just checked out because I couldn't do it, you know? Right. And and there's, um, I think that, when we talk about when Maureen talks about in this email, Mare's various identities, we get it so strongly in this episode where she talks to Zabel to the Evan Peters character about her dad. Her dad was a cop. I'm a cop. I'm a cop. That's the most important thing. I'm a cop. That's my identity. By the end of the episode, we see that stripped from her. Right. So the other identity that she talks a lot about in this episode is her identity as a mother. I was a bad mother. 
you know, like she's getting outside feedback and there's internal feedback. And so it's just this sort of like this world she's built, what her guiding principles are and, and how these two identities are sometimes in conflict with each other. She can be a really good cop and feel like she really let Kevin down as a mother, those things at the same time, you know? Yeah. 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 Um, okay. Before we get into theories, uh, just mm-hmm. one more email. Um, Nick writes to us. Um, I don't so much have a pot, plot or narrative question, but I'm curious what you guys thought about the way the show presented us with Aaron's body at the beginning of um, the last episode, Fathers. I don't think I'm too squeamish about this stuff normally, but it struck me as a little crass the way we lingered on a shot of Aaron's dead naked body for several seconds, in addition to another shot of the massive wound on her head, after already showing both of these to us at the end of the previous episode in a slightly more respectful way. I understand that there can be appropriate enough situations to show gore and the effects of violence, and there are other shows where I probably wouldn't have this thought. But considering that Mayor of Easttown went through such pains on the first episode to really introduce us to Aaron and make her a real person in our eyes, it felt unnecessary to linger so extensively on her body and what's been done to it. Her death already felt tragic enough because we knew her as a person, so I felt like in this situation it was pretty unnecessary. Just seeing Kate Winslet's expressive face react to what we've already seen would have been more than enough to remind us and emphasize for us the tragedy of what's happened. Plus, the show has been so empathic and humanistic with all its characters so far, it didn't seem like the type of show that really wanted to rub our faces in the muck. Curious to know how you guys felt about the choice and its usefulness for the show. Um, And then he adds a PS, maybe it was just me, but in the first episode, was there a second of loaded eye contact between one of Siobhan's uh, Siobhan's bandmates and the cousin priest? I don't know if it's just my tendency to look for sneaky gay shit everywhere. Uh, I'm with you on that, Nick, Uh, but I thought I noticed something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's such an interesting question, and thank you, Nick, for for writing in about it, um, because Mm -hmm. this episode also begins, well, not not exactly begins, it opens with a rather lovely shot of uh, mayor looking at her grandson as he plays um but pretty mm-hmm. quickly then cuts to aaron on the coroner's table mm-hmm. and it, it 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 it's shocking because the show is in other ways surprisingly gentle for a you know murder mystery i guess mm-hmm. um and uh, yeah i guess that you probably we probably didn't need those things i you know i think that there obviously has been so much dialogue for years about how many narratives about the death of young women, particularly white women and and the kind of moral horror that has surrounded that, but also this kind of prurience in, into seeing it, you know, um, the, the, the show, the show Clarice, um, the CBS show that's in the mm. Hannibal Lecter world, they deal with that in the first episode where, you know, it's someone faking these horrific serial killer things to cover up a different thing. Um, so it's an interesting dialogue to have. I think, for me, the show hasn't quite stepped over the line yet, but maybe, I don't know. Do you disagree, Joanna? Well, I just feel like I am, I must be like, complete, not completely, but very inured to that because like it didn't even register with me. And I feel, I feel a little troubled that it didn't even register with me because I've heard from a few people now that, that it really stuck out to them. Our, our one of our editors was like, I gave up the show. <laughs> like at the end of the first episode, they killed that nice girl, you know, like I didn't want to watch it. Obviously the er sort of, or I, I think the er dead girl um, to kick off a story show is Twin Peaks and Laura Palmer wrapped in plastic, all of that. Um, and then I think other shows have struggled to not just be 
Twin Peaks again. Do you know what I mean? The kill. I talked about this before, but the killing, like, um, I think it's Rosie Palmer who killed Rosie Palmer was this big, like sort of ad, um, you know, social media campaign around the killing and stuff like that. And I think you need to be really careful in the way that you do, you know, I think eventually at some point we woke up and we're like, what if it's not always a dead teen girl? What if we don't always have to see her like stripped down body? And, and, and maybe that's not, you know, what we want. And I think Laura Palmer compared to Aaron McMenamin is so interesting because like Laura, we, we hear about, but we don't meet until like fire walk with me and stuff like that. But I do, I like that this show gave us an episode of Aaron and did a really good job giving us Aaron so that she's not just an anonymous girl uh, that they find. And she's not just someone we hear about. And I think part of the reason for that is because, you know, because of this insular nature of this town, which we always talk about, this is someone that mayor knows, right? She immediately knows who Aaron is. She knows the cousins of the dad really well. And I, I apologize for missing it there that, that John and Billy are uh, Kenny's cousins. That's obviously hugely important because uh, they go looking for him in this episode. Right. Um, but like, I don't know. I, I, I think it's interesting. And I, uh, I didn't, it didn't, str- I, I hope there's a good, I'll say this. I hope there's a good reason for her clothes being stripped off her body. There's a lot of discussion about it in this episode, whether it was like to get rid of evidence, whether, you know, she was not sexually assaulted, it appears. So like, why take her clothes? Sable's guess is that it was to destroy evidence. Maybe that will come into play, but um, yeah, I I guess that's where I am. I want to keep thinking about it though, um, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think the show is just really starting to get its wheels in motion. And so it's really hard to tell where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. I hope they maintain the humanistic tone that Nick is referring to. Cause I think that's something that drew you and I to the show to cover it for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Cause it wasn't just another who killed, by the way, Joanna, Rosie Larson, oh, Laura sorry. Palmer. Sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. Rosie um, Larson. Because in, in you kind of briefly met Rosie Larson in the killing, but then it was just the rest of it was just a lugubrious fascination with her death, you know, and I think yeah. that that has become such a trope and really speaks to a broader, you know, misogyny and culture and obsessive, you know, obsession with violence against women um, that, uh, yeah, is a trope that should be broken, you know. Um, so I'm hoping that this was it, you know, uh, if it was too gratuitous for some, I totally understand. But mm-hmm. I think like you, Joanna, I probably, unfortunately all too uh, conditioned to see stuff like that. Yeah, I'm not happy about it, but I think that's where I am. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
on the slightly lighter side of things. <laughs> um, so we got some theories, which some people agreed with me about. Maybe it was Siobhan because she seemed kind of like a little too cool for school when being questioned about, you know, when she last saw uh, Aaron. Um, some people said, hey, maybe you're right, Richard. It's Lori, the friend. Um, because why would Julian Nicholson, the actor who's kind of well-known, be in this show if they were just going to have her play a random friend role? So I thought all those theories were appreciated, and please keep them coming. But I do think that one person has really given us the mm. rubric to go by okay. when trying to figure out who did this thing. And that's uh, Catherine has written to us, and she says, hear me out. The way I figure, based on the opening scene, so the opening scene of the whole show where um, the great Phyllis Somerville, may she rest, uh, the character she's playing um, is like someone was peeping and he looked like a ferret. Based on the opening scene, solving this mystery is going to come down to correctly guessing which actor on the show uh, <laughs> Brad Inglesby th thinks looks like a ferret. <laughs> and frankly, there are reasonable cases to be made for a number of men. Guy Pierce, sure, he has an alibi, but I think it's fair to say he has a rodent-like face shape, no shade. But if I were going to compare his likeness to any rodent, I would probably say a rat before I'd say a ferret. Wow, <laughs> Catherine wow. is not pulling any punches. Um, Evan Peters, honestly, pretty ferret-like face, cute ferret though. But that seems unrealistic. And of course, Dylan, top suspect for a lot of reasons, but I think you could make a solid argument that he looks like a ferret, maybe because he looks a bit like Evan Peters. <laughs> But if I had to say which of the suspects is truly the most ferret looking, or at least the one you'd most immediately describe as ferret looking, I'd probably go with the priest cousin. Also, this show has such the keeper's energy, so I'm putting my money on some shady Catholic stuff. Uh, and then Catherine was kind enough to include a pic picture of a ferret with a <laughs> speech bubble that says, you'll never catch me, Mary Feastown. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, thank you uh inspired i i mean yes i we can't forget that, that that the show opens on that scene for a reason right presumably do we but don't we get the answer to who is doing this graffiti in this episode well yes i mean i know we assume <laughs> those two things are related i do love this investigation though and i'm i'm happy to put cousin father uh dan is it i think uh in in the uh in the suspect uh, bucket because you know obviously there's a lot of uh suspicion gathering around deacon mark in this episode um you know he he ends the episode dumping uh aaron's bike in the river that certainly won't wash up i'm sure it'll be fine um but that it feels too early like all the suspicion on deacon mark feels like a like a swerve away from something else so it's interesting. I talked to uh, to Craig Zobel, and you'll you'll hear in the interview later in this episode, but about like I was trying to get his from him a sense of like what kind of killer are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with a killer where it's going to come so far out of left field that none of us could have ever guessed what it was, mm -hmm. or is it going to be a killer where the clues have been dropped all along? And if we go back and watch, it'll feel like, okay, you know, there was information there. A reasonable person could have come to this conclusion. And it's, you know, it seems like the former. They're not trying to, like, completely, completely gotcha us, you know, in all of this. So, um, yeah. And, and you know, uh, as you and I have talked about and, and as all the creators of the show have talked about, this show is not just a whodunit. 
it's about the interpersonal relationships in this town, which are so much more important, I think, um, more interesting oftentimes. But also, this is still watching, and so we're going to be guessing. We've <laughs> done it the whole time as well. So both those things are going to be true. Um, I want to follow up on a couple things we talked about um, last week and, and in the first episode. This idea of, like, is is this kind of show this detective in a small town show an outlier or is it part of a larger trend some people would put this show in the same bucket as big little lies little fires everywhere the undoing etc because like it's it's the like oscar winning actress you know showcase thing on on hbo or hulu or wherever the platform is right Mm -hmm. um and then some other folks brought up Sharp Objects to me, which I think is a better comparison because even though Amy Adams' character is not a detective in that show, she's a journalist, um, you know, she's she's trying to figure out what's going on uh, in, in her small town with complicated, juicy family uh, relations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then The Killing, which we, we've brought up a couple times, is also that Seattle-ish area, right? Um, yeah. But... Uh, I don't know. Like, I, this still feels like a little different to me. And I think it has to do with like the identity of the town. Like as much as Big Little Lies is, a, is kind of about Monterey, it's also really not about Monterey because that book was written like to be about Australian women. You know what right. I mean? And it's right. like it, the identity of Monterey does not feel like the, the, the uh, wealth and whiteness of those women feels like a, an important part of that story, but like the, the place itself, but this like really distinct ecosystem sociological structure of this place just feels so different to me than any of these other shows. What do you think, Richard? Yeah, I I think I said it last week, but I, I, you know, I think that this episode maybe verges us towards something that's a little soapier in certain aspects. We can get into that later, but like, I, I, yeah, it is so rooted in a place. I just have the feeling that when we find out who did it or, you know, maybe it's one person, maybe it's multiple people, it's going to be like really sad, you know, it's going to mm. be some like, ter- and I think that you get, you know, the thing that there was no sexual assault, like that, that this was a crime, maybe sort of not an accident exactly, but just sort of something that like it, it was, it was a spur of the moment kind of thing. Like the, it's not someone stalking the streets looking for people like Aaron. It's actually just kind of, it's more personal than that, you know? Um, although even though I think it's going to be very personal, I think it probably isn't, the obvious suspects, you know, mostly just because we have, you know, what, five more episodes to go. Um, Right. But yeah, I just, I think that they're really setting us up effectively um, for a small town, small city tragedy that maybe part of the sort of intent on Nicholas's part was to like have that echo the larger tragedies of these economically depressed towns. I want to talk about two timelines really quickly. Um, would you rather go through the mayor personal life timeline or the um, Aaron McMiniman death timeline that we know? Which, let's which go, do you want to do first? Let's go through the personal timeline. Okay. So like th- the point is all of these events um, took place m- even closer together than I originally thought mm-hmm. because Frank says that when he brought Aaron, diapers and wipes and formula he was like it's when kevin died right 
and the baby DJ is what like a year. I don't know how old babies are, but it's still a baby, right? Yeah. D- okay. So within the last year, Kevin died, and ish, right? And um, you know, Mare's mother moved in after Kevin died to help take care of Drew, right? And we don't know how long it is. I don't think we know how long it is. Frank and Mare have been divorced, but I don't think it's that long and that he's already engaged to like Faye and, and moved in like so close to her and stuff like that. It's just all feels like Mare's life fell apart very recently as opposed to like a, a, a long unraveling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It feels like maybe it was like a three or four year time period, you know, um, yeah. because like, you know, he said after, Kevin's death, but like that could he it could be like a couple years after, it could be a year after, you know, um, or he said he just died or whatever. Um, but yeah, but clearly because Aaron's baby is the age that it is, like all of this stuff is pretty fresh, you mm-hmm. know, for her. And I think that the discuss, you know, the conversation that she has uh with Zabel, um, where he's morosely drunkenly talking about like at 33 that life hasn't, you know. <laughs> turned uh-huh. out to be what he pictured and she sort of says you know the kind of more grandly tragic thing where she's just like i certainly didn't see my life getting this fucked up you know like falling mm-hmm. apart to this extent you know and i think the way that she kind of reels in that um is makes it feel that much more fresh yeah like in the fact that like i think what she's saying to zabel in that moment is you know he's talking about his personal life falling apart right and she's like yeah that fell apart he's talking he's having he's at a grander uh at loose ends conversation where he's like i um i think i think he's talking about the professional like everything in his life feels like not quite what he wanted right whereas she seems to be like well i knew i was always going to be a cop and i'm a cop and i'm a good cop um but it's this personal stuff that fell apart around it that I didn't see coming. Um, except we are right in the eye of the storm of her professional life falling apart. Right. Because she's already sort of on shaky territory with this, with the town because of this unsolved case that came before Aaron. Right. And then she does this thing in this episode where she plants drugs on um, Drew's mom and uh, gets her gun and her badge taken from her. And um, you know, what's so interesting about that scene and i'm sorry i like uh, we can talk about i'm obsessed with evan peter's performance in that scene i think it's one of the most incredible things i've ever seen um it's so good and um and i love him throughout this episode actually but um because he's like so eager to please her and um but in that scene i was trying to figure out like what is it that he says or she says that seems to fully push her over the edge to decide, yes, this is what I'm going to do. She's already taken the drugs from the evidence locker, but something about that conversation with him is what pushed her to be like, all right, this is, I'm going to do it. I'm going to plant, I'm going to plant these drugs. Um, and I think it's when he's like, I bet you were a good mother. And she's like, I wasn't. Yeah. And so it's, it's like, um, I think this woman is not going to be a good mother. And so I want to keep my grandkid away from her. And also I wasn't a good mother to my son, but I can be a good mother to this. Like, this is my second chance. I don't know. How do you, how do you interpret it? 
Yeah, I, I think that's. I, I think having this kind of depressing conversation with Sable, you know, and he's younger. And mm-hmm. she's like, oh, God, like, I things are even that much more worse for me. Like, I feel like in some ways she was like, I can't lose the only good thing, which we see her admiring at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, you know, back to the trend of tribalism. I'm thinking about that movie, Let Him Go, with Diane Lane and Kevin Costner and Leslie Manville that came out last fall, where a son dies and then there's a, cust- like, the, the, grand, the, the grandkid goes to live with... Um, it's mother's evil family run by Leslie Manville and Kevin Costner and Diane Lane go to like rescue the kid. Basically. I think there is, you know, when it comes to grandparents and paternity and all that stuff with a son, a lot of times the, I mean, at least in these narratives, like the, the son's family kind of assumes control of that child, or at least a sort of emotional control of that child, which isn't, Mm -hmm. you know, necessarily upheld by court, certainly, but, I think maybe there is a little bit of that sense of proprietariness towards um towards the grandson. Um but yeah, I think it's mostly just like she can't face the idea of losing another thing and exposing that kid to what she thinks is going to be a bad parenting situation. Um yeah. even though she goes about that by like making herself that much worse. Absolutely. She taints the thing that she is most proud of and most confident in herself in, which is her identity as a cop. And we see it earlier in this episode in that investigation scene with Sable where, I mean, I love that scene too, because like, first of all, there's her manipulating him into getting the dogs that she wants for the scene. I love that. As she's sort of like, uh, what is it? Uh, you know, jollying him along down a, a line of questioning to something and just sort of like, I don't know. I just love Kate Winslet's performance in that. And then this nighttime revelation where she finds the ricochet and she finds the bullet and Zabel's like, how in the hell did she do that? We know that she's a good cop. We know Mm -hmm. that she's, she's good at that. And she throws it all away in this episode. Um, And, you know, in an active, I mean, much less serious, but also, you know, another bit of self-sabotage, she has this heartfelt conversation with Richard about his family and his son and like, you know, all of his kind of mistakes that he's trying to make up for and that he and his son now do have a good relationship. And he says to her, he's like, you know, like just try to basically make common cause with your, you know, daughter-in-law or whatever she technically is to mayor. Um, And she seems to hear what he's saying, but also kind of dismiss it in the moment and then completely does the opposite, you know? And so it's not that she's betraying Richard at all, but she's like, here is someone who's offering maybe not what she wanted to hear, but actually kind of comforting, constructive advice, you know, like greet this situation with an openness and try to forge a relationship that may, you know, keeps everyone at least happy ish, you know, um, and it's, you know, who knows how that would actually work, but it's not a bad idea to try. And then she completely doesn't try. She does. Well, you know. okay. I think she like 10% tries in that she goes and has, she sits down with her, right? But she kind of snaps right away. Oh, yeah. It's like, it's not an olive branch. It's like, I've I've brought you this olive twig. You know I'm what I mean? And then stab you with it. <laughs> Stab me with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I felt like that was Richard's influence of like her even having that conversation in the first place. And yeah, then it just goes fair. south, yeah. you know? So, yeah. That's fair of Easttown. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Let's talk about the timeline of, of Aaron's death. Because so we have this 
last phone call she made is at 10.55 to um, the deacon. Uh, Zabel has been bringing up this question of her bike the whole time. We find out that the deacon has it. So, like, he not only got a call from her, he saw her that night, right? Is mm-hmm. is is a, is a good... A reasonable guess we can make and then also she died pretty quickly thereafter because her the the bullet wound which appears to be like a, a bullet that took off half her finger and then grazed her forehead and then chunked into that tree i think is mare's hypothesis right like yeah. so if if uh, aaron had her hand up defensively took off part of her finger hit her in the like grazed her forehead went into the tree um and was a ricochet at that you know what I mean? Which speaks to sort of your question of like um, an act, a terrible accident. A, really a hesitancy, sad, at least. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, and then, uh, but that those wounds are nearly as fresh as the wounds that she got when she was sort of beat up in that scene we saw in episode one. So that she wasn't killed like that much later um, in the night, but then she was brought from that location, that park to the river and her clothes were taken off of her. Um, I don't know. I I don't know what all that means. I just thought I'd lay out the timeline as far as we know it. So um, Siobhan is back on the table as far as I'm concerned. I I don't know why uh, you guys think it's Siobhan, but I'm here for it. Um, Why not? Um, Does it, does, does that timeline illuminate anything else for you? Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the thing with the deacon, yeah, I don't, I don't think they necessarily think it's a red herring. You know, the also the fact that he had been transferred, you know, mm-hmm. and you know there is this knee jerk reaction in me to, and it's just because of like, like I don't know storytelling things. I'm like, well, I mean, I don't know. Like, should we always kind of go after the the the, the priest or the person in the clergy or whatever? And it's like, well. Actually, history suggests that, you know, it that there's a lot of awfulness that has come out of that organization um, that has been covered up for, you know, decades um, with especially with moving priests and other, you know, people with the church around to different towns and sort of trying to like basically push them further from their problems. Um, So I think it's a totally fair suspect and obviously the bike thing at the end. But like. Again, going back to like, I think it's going to be sad. There's going to be sort of an accidental or hesitant quality to this. Like, I could see it with him, or maybe he's just trying to protect himself because the reason, you know, maybe there's a backstory to why he had to leave the other town. And like, he just has the bike and he knows it would make him look bad. Um, but I don't know. There's, it's to the extent where I'm like, I wonder, maybe it's possible we haven't even met the, the suspect yet or the, the person who did it yet. I think we have based on what Craig said about, yeah. I think, I think it's someone we met probably in the pilot would be my guess. Okay. It might not be someone we're looking at too closely. And I, I I'm not, I'm not t- putting my finger on the scale of anything. Um, Cause I don't know who did it, but like, uh, you know, I, I think it's someone will, we, who will have been around. Um, let me ask you, Oh, I want to talk about the, the Kenny Dillon, DJ of it all because I binged these episodes. So I didn't have any time between Kenny shooting Dylan at the end of episode two and Dylan being alive at the beginning of episode three. So I don't, I didn't feel any sense of like, 
uh, what a fake out or whatever. But looking at the reaction, it seemed like most people thought Dylan was dead, which is, you know, kind of the expectation, uh, you know, the, the show is trying to set for you. Um, did you feel like that felt, did that feel like a, like a, at all a cheapo fake out or what did you think? Well, may, maybe it's a, it's a convenience narratively, but I think the important thing for it to keep this show kind of running along is if another kid gets killed, you know, horribly murdered, then it takes the show in a whole other direction unless they just want to ignore that death. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think that like they're tr the show knew better than to do that. I think maybe was the doctor saying, you're very lucky. It turns out you're, you have all your functions, you know, like, like he seems to, I mean, he's obviously hurt, but like nothing maybe permanent is wrong with him. Um, Yes, maybe that's a little tidy, but I, I, I'm glad that it, it, what it does is, is it helps us keep our focus on Aaron's case and, uh, and, and Mayor without another horrible, tragic thing being added to the pile. You know, um, I'm really wary of the show adding too much. I think that we are heading a little bit in that territory with, um, Siobhan's romance and Mayor doing this really boneheaded thing with the evidence with the heroine which like mm -hmm. it, we saw her be a great cop in this episode and then she makes a cardinal error of not changing the label on the heroine i can't believe she used stamped heroin you know I, even i know not to use stamped heroin I mean, man I, I, Come I, on. I, all the times i planted h on someone i i would never <laughs> you switch baggies guys um but like you know what i mean so i i, I there's a, i have a little bit of a nervousness around that stuff where i'm like you know, this is only at the end of episode three, like how much more is going to be added to this soup? I'm glad that the grim seasoning of Dylan being dead and then there mm. being another murderer in, in, the, in mm -hmm. our midst. I'm glad that they didn't go that route, even if, yes, it could be read as a little bit of a fake out because they ended the episode with the shooting. Um, Dylan being in the hospital at least puts him in this vulnerable state that makes me slightly inclined to be interested in him in a way that I like really hated him before. Right. Yeah. But you know, that his vulner, his physical vulnerability and his vulnerability around the paternity of DJ, which is obviously something that is like really impacting him. Um, you know, he, he seems so like shitty and dismissive of Aaron at the beginning, but like he like, you know, it clearly matters to him whether or not he is DJ's father. Um, in yes, that scene where he, exactly. where he asks his dad to put, you know, the baby on his lap and stuff like that. And, um, and, and getting to know Dylan's parents a little bit and stuff like that. It is a lot of characters to track, but I, I like this deepening of Dylan's character. Um, in well, all yeah, it may, I mean, I think there's a nice parallel there to Kenny, you know, where we saw mm -hmm. him being a shitty dad to Aaron. And then we saw his grief when she was dead. And it, it, it gives us a window into a very human complexity, which is like, a person can be an asshole, but to someone and still love them. And uh, I mean, maybe some people would say that's not true, that it's not real love if they're an asshole to them. And I sure that's a fair point, but you know what I mean? They can at least have strong emotions toward those people. Um, and they can, in, in Dylan's case, he's young. He didn't clearly want this kid. And I kind of almost wondered, maybe I'm reading too much into it after watching this episode twice, but like if there was a little flicker of something almost starting to look like relief or, or or possible relief when Dylan, the wheels start turning. He's like, wait, if this isn't my kid, maybe I'm free, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
I wonder if that will come into play in any way or because obviously you have his Dylan's parents who were really invested and his mom was like, you know, I would sneak the baby out and let Aaron, you know, give him a squeeze when it was like Dylan's weekend to be with um, Mm -hmm. the baby. Um, So that complicates things certainly a lot, but that also mirrors Mare's situation. I think there are nice little parallels happening in this episode emotionally Mm -hmm. and, and narratively. Um, And I'm curious to see where they'll, where, where they will go. Although I suppose the show could always get more bogged down in the like red herring clues and, you know, dumb behavior on Mayor's part. <laughs> um, I want to talk about, um, I mean, you're right. There's so much going on in this episode um, that I, I, I want to make sure I don't miss anything. But like you, you, you seem uh, distrustful or uh, tell me, tell me a little bit more about how you're feeling about Siobhan and this um girl that she's interested in like she so she has it she has a girlfriend um i think her name is becca um becca as we've seen in a couple episodes now has something of like a substance abuse issue Mm. um Mm -hmm. and siobhan uh you know whether it's because of her own family stuff or whatever just seems a little frustrated (laughs) in 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 this aspect of her partner and i think it's i think it's part of that whole like what our emailer said because kevin maybe got a lot of the attention siobhan has to be a self-reliant thing and we see her as this like second mother to drew right in this episode with the toenail clipping scene and and throughout she's mothering drew she's she's been forced into a much more mature role but maybe that's not what she wants in a relationship to be like the mother in that relationship too you know so like um but well, does it just all feel like too too satellite, too tangential? Like, what do you feel? I just don't want it to be a device, you know, like mm-hmm. where it's like, look, we're doing like a progressive thing by putting a queer relationship on screen, you know, a queer, um, you know, uh, interracial. interracial relationship, yeah. you know, and I, I don't want um, the... the I don't want the Anne character to be given short shrift, but now she's been introduced and it's like, okay, well, where's that going to go? I just worry that we're, it, it's taking us somewhat far afield of the, the core sort of narrative as I see it. I might be wrong. Maybe it's going to circle back. Maybe it will come to inform something, maybe in a new person who I think really crucially um, represents something very different from the rest of Siobhan's life. You know, it's, it's, haverford college which is a fancy school full of progressive kids from all over the country and world probably like it is not east town you know at least as she knows east town to be um Mm. maybe in that sort of i'm i'm leaving my life i'm with this older woman um there will become maybe some truth telling and so maybe we'll hear something maybe that's what they're setting up is like a way for siobhan to speak a bit more candidly because unlike all of this tribalism we see you can't talk to anyone in east town without someone else you know be like you're talking about my cousin or whatever like it's all so interrelated whereas this is a completely separate person and world and maybe it'll kind of reveal more of her character as it relates back to east town it might be something like the the richard character is for mayor just someone exactly what you're saying someone for siobhan to say uh tell some truths to um we shall see uh I I cannot let us go without talking about um, <laughs> Helen Jean Smart's character meeting Richard <laughs> mm-hmm. and the masterclass of cringy mom flirtation that Jean Smart uh, puts on in this uh, you know stairway scene. 
I I was I was losing it. What did, what did you think, Richard? I, I think there's a great line in there when you know Mara's like, I I got a date, you know, and Helen's like, you what? Oh, she's so surprised. It's clearly been a long time since that happened. And she's like, no, no, I'm just, I'm just happy. I'm just happy that you're moving on with your life. And it's like, it's one date. Like, it doesn't mean that she's <laughs> moving on with her life. It's like that narrative has not been settled. You know, I think that's such a kind of getting ahead of yourself sort of mom thing um, mm-hmm. that I thought was really uh, cute, but also I'm sure, you know, a, a frustrating too for, for the, you know, if you're the kid in that scenario. Um, yeah. And I can't wait to screenshot um, Kate Winslet saying, his name's Richard. He's a writer. I'm that, like, I know. <laughs> that's going to be on my, on my Twitter. Cause it's funny. Um, cause that's my name and my job. Um, and you're a writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it was sweet. I, I, I really thought the scene at dinner with the two of them was really well done. And, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about last week about like the guy Pierce of it all. And like, is his celebrity kind of distracting from what's supposed to be kind of a smaller role that is not a suspect role, you know, um, who knows, maybe he is. Um, but like, what a lovely scene for two former co-stars Winslet and Guy Pierce to be able to do together and, and have all those little undulations and to have a, a, a guy like Richard who we kind of saw be an asshole at the book party or the mm-hmm. cocktail party mm-hmm. cop to that later, you know, being like, I got, you know, I got all this attention for women and then I was just doing that. And like, I wasn't a good father and I certainly wasn't a good husband and, you know, um, but be kind of candid about it and open. And I think that, um, you know, we haven't seen, we've seen a lot of people act bluntly in Mayor's world, but not be so analytical about why they did it or, or, or kind of contrite or whatever. And I think that must be a breath of fresh air in some ways. Again, like Anne, the DJ, it's just a different environment to be in for, for Mayor. Yeah. And I, and I, I like it. it, you know, it is an exposition device, but it is done so beautifully and there's give and take. It's not just her telling her story. It's him telling him his story, deepening those characters from, from two great actors. I think I love that scene. And I did want to circle back to Anne because, you know, you brought up that this would be um, an interracial relationship on the show. And I, something I've been meaning to bring up and haven't yet is, is the role of race in the show. And I'm thinking specifically, you know, there's like, there's Mare's teammate, Beth, and her brother, right? And like, we met her brother in the first episode where he's yeah, um, like, you know, on the run. And that's how Mare got injured, was chasing him and stuff like that. Freddie, right? And then there's also the the chief of police or, or Mare's chief, at least, is is a black man. And that's sort of it. It's like those those four characters. And I, I don't know if I figured out quite yet what the show is trying to say, I mean, that might just be like, you know, the, the, the iconic makeup of, of a town like this. But um, I think I do want to flag <laughs> this chief of police thing. Cause there was this great Twitter thread, which I think got zapped for some reason. And I was really disappointed because I thought it was so good. But this idea that like oftentimes uh, in film and television in the realm of inclusivity, it is often like, a captain of the guard. This is like, it was pertaining to like frozen to, mm-hmm. and also Thor. And there was just like a bunch of stuff where it was Phantom just like, Menace, it, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like a noble, you know, unimpeachable captain of the guard, chief of police, blah, 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 is your 
diversity. And so, um, and I noticed it in a bunch of, I was rewatching a bunch of Shakespeare adaptations and they often, you know, you think of like Denzel Washington and much ado or, or the, um, the prince in Romeo and Juliet. So like that, like they, in, in Baz Luhrmann's like they, that's where they will put like a black actor. And um, I don't know. I, just thought, I, I was just sort of having a moment seeing the, the chief of police be one of four non-white characters <laughs> in this show. Um, yeah. And, it's definitely yeah. a trope. And, you know, um, John Douglas Thompson, who plays uh, Chief Carter on the show, mm-hmm. is speaking of Shakespeare, one of the great stage interpreters of Shakespeare working in this country. He's incredible. Um, if you get a chance to see him on stage, do it. Um, he at least brings more character to the role, but it oh, is yeah. still that kind of like, watch yourself, Mayor. Oh, I'm disappointed, Mayor. It's very transactional, you know, in a way, and I and I think that is unfortunate. I don't know enough, and maybe I should have done my research before doing this podcast, but I don't know enough, frankly, about the demographic makeup of these towns in Pennsylvania. I would imagine they're somewhat more diverse than we're seeing on this show, but maybe not. Um, We can certainly look into that for next week. But um, And we've gotten a ton of emails from people who are local to this area, this like Delco um, area. And uh, so I would love to hear from you local folks, like what you think of of the makeup of this town. I did love this like winter food drive that we saw where we saw just everyone kind of, I don't know, just the, the treatment of community in the show is, uh, is so, is so sharp. All right. Let's talk about one last thing before we go to our interview with uh, Craig Zobel, which is uh, Zabel, Zabel and Zobel. I don't know if that was intentional, but um, Evan Peters, (laughs) In this episode, uh, not just the drunk scene, but as I mentioned, like all the ways in which he is so eager to please Mare, and and so you know, like there's that scene where she 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 tells him he she needs the dogs, and he gets on the phone with the guy, and he's just like, I don't I, I don't care, you got to get me these dogs. Mare wants the dogs, I got to get the dogs for her. I want to impress her, or like his description of how he found the the missing girl, and it seems very like he doesn't have a great answer for that. And he feels a little weird about this. He's this celebrated, you know, young detective for finding this 10-year-old girl. And he's just sort of like, I don't know. I worked the case. Um, so, you know, we talked a little bit before about how this is something like a little a little different opportunity for Evan Peters. But g- genuinely, that drunk scene, I have rewatched it about five times now. And the different emotions that he runs through in that the like laughing off something and swinging really quickly into emotional despair. And then the like brief, uh, you know, attempt at like seductive flirtation and stuff like that, which was so dead on for someone who thinks they're being smooth when they're drunk. And there is no smoothness there at all. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm a huge fan. What What do you think, Richard? Oh, it's so good. You know, playing drunk is so hard. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I've, I've read actors say I actually did have to play drunk in the last time I acted, which was senior year of college. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. I was, I played a former street hustler. Um, Love that. So for you. Who got slapped in the face uh, by a woman f- several times in the scene while I was drunk. Um, it's really hard. Um, and you know, sometimes actors will look watch tape of themselves drunk. They'll record themselves drunk and then kind of mimic that. Um, whatever Evan Peters was doing, it it gets that kind of, you know, it's not necessarily in vino veritas. It's sort of like alcohol brings out maybe an exaggerated version, but there still is truth in there. 
mm-hmm. and just the way he's talking to her i get that he's i fully get that he's reeling from reeling from this reunion thing where he saw his soon-to-be ex-wife and like and or this, i think his ex-fiance ex-fiance rather sorry yeah yeah, um, yeah and and you know again in a very different form like siobhan with Anne and mayor with richard here Mary is something different she 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 has no context in his past life and so she seems so appealing in that moment i think he's also impressed by her competency and all that um that it really sets up for like the heartbreak or what that, that's whatever's going to happen when he finds out that she's basically been suspended you know next mm-hmm. week but yeah it's a it's a really great piece of acting um that is it i think the drunk acting is like deceptively hard to do it's like you can't just fake it it has to be i mean you, you ha- everyone's faking it hopefully but like it that takes nuance and i think he really nailed it all right so before richard and i wrap up with um our latest guesses of who done it um let us go to my interview with the director of this and every episode of this season uh where he talks very specifically about the seven peter scene Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I wanted to start by showering you with compliments and saying that not only have you directed a couple films that I really love, like Z for Zechariah or The Hunt, but you've directed some of my favorite episodes of some of my favorite television shows. You did Akane no Mai, the sort of samurai-inspired episode of Westworld. You did uh, International Assassin, which is a infamous episode of The Leftovers. And then you did one of my stealth favorite episodes of The Leftovers, which is Lens, which features this really long conversation between Regina King and Carrie Coon. So I just want to say I'm, I'm, I'm just a huge fan of your work, and I'm so excited to get to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's a, that means a lot, actually. Thanks. So, so looking at your entire CV, and I'm sure I'm the 900th person to point this out to you, but you know, you have an affinity for working with like really interesting women on really interesting characters, and I'm wondering if that's been a a conscious choice in your career or just something you sort of happened into. It sort of started happening, and 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 I think to some degree, I mean. Frankly, honestly, I, I recognize that I actually have more like female friends than I have male friends. So I, <laughs> I guess I was just, it's just sort of like, it didn't occur to me to like not be telling a story that way, if that was what made sense. And so um, I, and then really it's, it kind of turned into just like there being really interesting people that I've wanted to work with. But um, I, I, it wasn't, you know, um, certainly wasn't overly designed but was just sort of kind of happened and and is where where the 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 work has taken me i guess you know is there anything you've learned you learned working on those two episodes of leftovers and that phenomenal episode of westworld specifically akane no mai that i don't know informed your your filmmaking going forward I mean, this is going to sound like, uh, stop me if this sounds too like annoying filmmaker talk, but <laughs> it's constantly like I'm looking for kind of what to like learn from each job and, and each experience. I would say, you know, certainly like the beginning with the beginning with leftovers, it was just sort of understanding like what was the same between television and, and, and film and then what was, you know, different about it 
And I mean, maybe like to a degree that parsing that difference and actually getting under, oh, you can drop hints. Like sometimes you just need to drop the hint. Like it, it actually became kind of a structure and story lesson for me. And especially working with Damon Lindelof is a structure and story lesson for anybody who is around him um, because he's so good at that. Um, I got an education in that from, from that. And then, I mean, going into something like Westworld, I certainly got an education in special effects in a way that I had never done before, which is a little boring to say, but all you've done is make little indie movies. Like, it can be slightly intimidating to be, <laughs> to be like, and then it's going to look like Japan? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Right. What are we doing? So um, that was like a big education, and um, and but and it was also that was also a very fun kind of like that experience was was great in that like having you know at that point I'd I'd maybe worked with like maybe two or three different and different shows, three I guess at that point, and then to get to see how Lisa jo- Joy and Jenna Nolan were like running this like you know ginormous huge ship um was also just kind of an education to like to like to understand like what i don't know what what a big job it is what can you tell me about taking over this project from gavin sort of once the production had already like hitting the ground running i suppose yeah i mean that was truly what it was it was uh it was hitting the ground running and it was it it was interesting in that it was like I, i i you know I, some things that were already established in a in a style uh, that that you know we had to kind of figure out how to be like, which which existed over the course of the seven episodes because they were like just doing kind of you know fully box shooting the whole thing um, cross boarding the entire uh, me to really just chart being like I want to add more camera movement I want to do I want to do some things differently but I want to make sure that the stuff that's already exists so that we're in yeah. the same world, you know, and, and like, kind of like how, what if, what if that stuff is working the best? That was a consideration in my brain. Yeah. So you have to match someone else's style while trying to be able to do as much of the style that interests you for this project at the same time. Why do you think Brad is so interested in telling stories about basketball players? <laughs> <laughs> what is that connection for him? And how did, how did, how did he communicate it to you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Brad's really tall. He played basketball. He um he ha- has a whole background with that. Um uh I um I often called it my sports facade <laughs> because I I don't I I really like don't follow sports very much. So um so but the one sport I do kind of know anything about is basketball. So that uh, because I was uh I was the worst person on uh on a team in middle school um so uh i vaguely <laughs> understood basketball but, but uh, yeah I, I i think he just i think he, he just uh it, it's, it's familiar to him and what about this this very specific area like something so i so i was talking about this show and how it reminds me of some of my favorite british crime dramas which are so good at establishing a sense of place, a very specific sense of place. So I'm curious about the sense of place that you really want to establish here, that Brad wanted to establish here, and, and you know, what lengths do you go to to make sure that this really feels like a truly lived-in, authentic spot in America? I mean, it all kind of, for me, it all started where it's like, well, if we're going to have East Town in the title, we better do a good job. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> trying to like make this distinct. Um, and, um, and, and partly like I hadn't really spent any time in Philadelphia before then, which was good. I actually think, um, it was good. It was both good that Brad was a person who had been there, you know, grew up there, but it was also good that I hadn't. And then I did that for me, I was able to put mm-hmm. anthropologist head in the game and, and like, you know, like notice things because, they were fresh and new to me. Um, so, uh, uh, I, you know, I think I, I just kind of wanted to approach it as much as possible to not feel like it was making assumptions or like, I wanted to make sure that if, that if you were from there, you didn't feel like we got it wrong or that we were judging or something. Um, that was my main thing was like, what, what of this is, is fascinating to me. And like, how is there, how do we like portray, you know, how do we portray that in a way that makes it read as, as unique and specific, but also, also not, um, judgy. I was, um, I hope it's okay, it's okay with him for me to tell you this, but I was talking to a friend of mine who grew up right around there. He said some of, some of the cops from his hometown were part of filming security for your sure. production. And he was like, they got it perfectly. Like, I think you, that's what we've heard from a couple, uh, my pal and a couple viewers have told me that you guys got it perfectly. And of course, a lot of people are talking about this Delco accent, this really notoriously tricky accent to do. Um, when you are approaching a project, especially one that's, you know, they've already shot some, so like who's doing the accent, who's not, or whatever is already established. Like, what are some of the challenges of something like this? A, a tricky accent for any actor to talk. We had uh, Susanna McCarthy. We had a, a, a local um, a dialect coach who happened to know the accent really well, uh, uh, in addition to being this like highly specialized job of being a dialect coach. So that was so mm-hmm. valuable and lucky. And she and I would constantly have conversations just about like who and how much and what. And and they became conversations really about class and to some degree generations. Like the older, the older you are, the stronger the accent is. I think just everywhere. Um, mm. But um, mm-hmm. like the kids, we were like, well, it should be light. There was a, for sure like a, a lot of conversations about kind of like how do we subtly tell a story about because it it, it does. I think it is you know a, a marker of different class and, and kind of socioeconomic things um and so we were you know trying to be make sure that we were you know correct about that as much as we could be so you have someone like jean smart and she's gonna go hard on the accent and then dilute it a bit for the kate winslet generation and dilute it a bit more for the angry rice generation is that absolutely right yeah that's absolutely right jean smart is one of one of my favorite actresses in the whole world because i'm an old school designing women fan yeah a day that jean was on the call sheet was the day that i knew i was gonna have a good day she's the best she's having this incredible like i just love like her work on Fargo, on Legion, for for Demon and Watchmen and stuff like that. And I just I, I love seeing this this appreciation for a woman who's been doing such great work for so long, you know? She has steadily worked forever, but it's it is so awesome to see all of this stuff. And I'm so excited about her new show, um, that I think she's in the process of, of putting together right now. Sounds like it's gonna be hilarious. But yeah, she really was truly like it was fun because, you know, <laughs> There was definitely at least one or two times where, like, 
we would kind of do a scene and I would maybe give a, a, give a note that got a different performance, you know, that she would take, take the note and, and we would go in a different direction. I was like, Oh, that's cool. And that's like, you know, kind of not how I imagined it on the page, but is deep and, and, and I can see the relationship between these, this mother and daughter. And that was neat. And then I would do one. she, then at the end, she'd be like, should we just do one? That's like where I just do it, how it can just be funny the whole time. And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> And then that was always like really, really funny. <laughs> <laughs> and we would use a little bit of the other stuff, but I mean, <laughs> it was hard to not use just, you know, Gene Smart being funny in the edit whenever you oh, could. What can you tell me about Guy Pierce taking over the role that, that Ben Miles is going to play? Did that happen before you came on or, or after? No, that happened while I, when okay. I came on. Yeah. Guy is amazing. He jumped in two feet first, uh, you know, didn't have a whole lot of prep before he was able to come at the first time. <laughs> and then we, sh- we, sh- we actually were able to, uh, I believe that the night before we shut down for the quarantine, um, he, uh, came and literally, uh, drove car up to the house and got out of the car. And that was, <laughs> that was like the last thing we shot. And then we went down for, for the quarantine. So it was kind of like, at first it was a rush and then we actually had time to kind of to, to between um, Kate and Guy and I to like work on the scenes and, and rehearse them and stuff. But um, yeah, he had just started working with us the night of the, of the pandemic. So you, you're shut down in March and you come back, I think what, early September, is that right? That's right. Back into production. Mm-hmm. I was reading another interview you did where you had to change a lot of things, you know, to make sure that this is a safe working environment. You have to change a lot of things in the script. You have to be really flexible to accommodate that. How does that process work? Are you making changes on the fly? Or, you know, how does the, the reworking of the script to accommodate the COVID restriction function? It kind of worked in maybe two different ways. There was a, uh, well, I'll say there was like three different ways that it worked. One was that we had the, you know, we didn't really, st- we were at our house, but houses, but we didn't stop working kind of during the pandemic. And, and as it became clear that that was going to happen, we were doing some of that work well prior to, to going back. Um, after, you know, as we were starting to, to shoot, a lot of it was location-based. I mean, I, the obvious th- things that you would imagine that, it's a, that it is, you know, stuff like, like not having too many extras and so on and so forth. But it was also like, it's just, it got a lot harder to move to different places because, um, and especially at that point in the the in September, we still, you know, were the the level of like how how much does COVID spread by fomites, by like touching surfaces and things like that. So we were being incredibly cautious on all of that stuff, and it just it sort of limited yeah. the amount of travel that you could do in a day. You couldn't you couldn't kind of just bounce around um, town, and you couldn't because it was raining all of a sudden change something. So um, when we got there we had kind of this collection of, uh, of different locations that it seemed like if we went to, if we found some sort of institutional place, like a college of some sort, we could put together a bunch of different locations there. And we found this amazing old college. It actually is not a working college anymore. It's actually like a school for underprivileged kids in high school, but it was, uh, this very cool, like, you know, from Philadelphia. So very old, uh, uh, you know, from the 
1800s like like place that we spent a good portion of like um just shooting a bunch of different things that were all all kind of there and and, and in terms of right rewriting it became a thing where it's like well can this scene happen here because we have access to this thing <laughs> it's like like right right like it became kind of like trying to retroactively kind of go backwards in that direction with it um which was uh again coming from indie film that's sort of that's sort of the the thing you do <laughs> it's like well i know you wrote it for times square but we can't shoot there so what about this place <laughs> <You know? laughs> right um, but, uh, and then, and really and the third thing was like, there would definitely be things that would have slipped by all of us. And like on set, we would be like, Oh, they can't share that drink <laughs> or whatever it is, you know, like something that just had like, I mean, not, there was nothing that obvious, but there's little things where it's like, Oh, that's actually maybe like a COVID safety concern. Um, and those things at that point, they were very small and it was just a matter of like, you know, coming up with a solution on that. But, 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 but most of it we, we were doing beforehand. How, how inventive did you get in redressing that college uh, or, the, or that school setting? Like I can think of, I won't spoil, but like I can think of one location that makes a perfect fit for something like that. But are, are you, you know, creating living rooms in this building? Is like how, how much are you using it in that way? Kind of anything that was like at all institutional or like was like a, you know, a government buildings and things like that. Like mm-hmm. we were able to do a bunch of different things like that. And we did do, um, there was like, there was, you know, a few apartments like on, both on the property or like right outside of the gates. Um, that we did do, mm. we're able to kind of like do that. Um, there's laundry mat that we use in one scene. You know, there was just things that were there that that were like um, it made it it made it feasible um, to kind of. It's like, can this character not work at a grocery store but work at a laundry mat in the middle of the night? You know, both of the scenes would have happened at the same time. It's kind of the same beat, but can this happen like that? And 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 we were able to 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 really do. Um, a wide variety of stuff. That is a really inventive new kind of location scouting. It's like, what can we turn this into? But I suppose maybe that's just, as you say, indie film, indie film 101 or something. There were a couple of times where it's like, oh, this would be great for that, except for we can see that other thing that is clearly also a location in our show from there. And <laughs> then the, unlike an indie film, we put up a giant green screen. <laughs> Like and just block that off and then put a new thing in the background. You know, that was Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, all right. So I was thinking about um I haven't seen, I think a lot of people are responding. I mean, people are responding really positively to the show. And I think, you know, one reason is that they've never seen Kate Winslet do something like this. But I also think uh, in American um, detective shows, crime shows, we are also not used to seeing any women do something like this. And the, and the closest analogs I have are to, again, British detective series like Happy Valley or, or Prime Suspect or something like that. And then you've got, you know, in episode two, you've got Evan Peters showing up like all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, which I think is like a sort of a character we're more used to seeing uh, like a young woman play against a sort of like downtrodden male, older male detective. Like that's the usual dynamic. So I'm wondering, do you think of it at all in the term of like a, a gender flip or 
Um, is that not how you're characterizing it in your own head? I don't know of that many American female detective stories either. So I, I felt like we were doing something cool there just in terms of like, you know, um, uh, pursuing that. But, but, but I think that, that, um, how the actors kind of, what drew them to the roles in a way, um, especially between the relationship between Evan Peters and, and uh, Kate Winslet's like characters, like, you know, Kate, I think was really excited to play, to play this type of a person. Like, like who knew what the story was going to be, but it, but it was like, I, I think that the, the, she was eager to kind of do something that was in this vein um, of this gruff, you know, this like very interesting like person that basically doesn't have time for any of your nonsense. <laughs> and like, I think, I think that that in turn, you, because on the page you could have played, you know, Evan could have played his character, I think completely differently but like for sure like when we were in rehearsals or like interacting and like putting it on its feet it became the most interesting choice for him to be the bright-eyed bushy-tailed one um to, both to him and to me you know like it was like oh this is working this is this is a funny dichotomy i mean i suppose that those uh th that um I, you know, I wouldn't have ever thought of it the way that you just described it, which is like, that would normally be the young female role, but you're totally right. And that's, that's accurate. I guess I, I, I guess it just felt like that was the contrast that was needed and, and was, and was yeah. fun to play at the time, you know? There's a scene that Evan Peters, and I've watched Evan Peters work for a very long time. And there's a scene that he does in the show that I'm like, I did not know Evan Peters was capable of that. Of, of that level of performance. Oh my gosh, I um, totally agree. I don't, I don't know. I, I know exactly what scene <laughs> you're talking about. I remember like hugging yeah. him at the end. Like I remember it was like emotional and we were like, we hugged at the end. <laughs> um, it was Aww. so great. Yeah, he, he, uh, he, um, it was important to me. It was, I think that, that, that it could have, that scene could have been played a different way. It was really important to me and I brought it up way early with him where I was like, I feel like this is going to be important for the audience to like have a different opinion of this person at this point, um, to like learn more information with this. Um, and, and so we, mm -hmm. we had kind of talked about it, um, um, a, a good bit. It was sort of the thing that we had talked about and, um, and it was, uh, it was, a roller coaster shoot, you know, because I think Evan all of a sudden was r r really invested in and making sure that we got there. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm just really like I, I think the world is that guy. He's really really great, and um, I I hope to work with him again. He, it, it was that scene was just like so fun, and so, I mean sad <laughs> and yeah. a bunch of other things, but it was awesome. Yeah, I'm just curious. I don't. You know, I don't think I would characterize anything you've done before as like a whodunit. And so, um, you know, certainly there are like twists in the hunt and stuff like that. But like when you're when you're filming a very classic whodunit, um, what's what's the most fun for you and what's the most challenging for you? I guess like what I've learned about a whodunit um, from, from this. And I have done it a little bit before. I worked on this uh, show that's on Paramount Plus now called One Dollar that was also a oh, right, right. detective yeah. story, but it was slightly different. Um, it had a, a whole different kind of premise to it. But um, the, 
thing that I kind of recognized was like, uh, I guess like what was fun about this project for me in the whodunit was that we needed to make sure that that stayed fun. Um, but I also was very kind of pretty quickly or, or from the scripts even was like, it was clear to me that that was not the only thing happening in the, in the story and that it was supposed to also be a, a, um, there is a level that this is a family drama as well, you know? Um, and so it, we, I want to just make sure that when we were in the detective story, it was, uh, satisfying your detective story needs <laughs> so to speak um um which yeah. you know which was like which was a little tricky and a little a little it, it definitely was kind of like oh we should actually like change the the you know visual storytelling a little bit to like do this more and so it's, it was definitely a thing that i was kind of constantly um, recognizing that there was a dichotomy between the the Texas story and the family drama, and that in my hopes being that you you probably tuned in because you wanted to see the detective story, so that we <laughs> needed to make that good too. <laughs> I'm talking to you now. I don't know who done it, and I kind of like being in that position um, because then I get to speculate wildly. Um, f- for you, if you're watching a Who Done It, like I'll, I'll just ask you this. I don't think it's too leading of a question. Um, how much do you feel like you want the thing telegraphed and how much do you want it to catch you completely by surprise? Are there reveals that feel sort of so out of left field, they feel unfair. Are there reveals that feel like way too telegraphed in advance? So you're not, you're not at all, you know, wondering, like, how do you calibrate those two? Look, I like start to answer this question, like I'm a deep authority on this one, not, but I <laughs> like my feeling, my deep authority feeling of it at the moment is that I feel like if you're doing, if you're doing something that um, I, you know, I feel like the easiest way to, to describe it would be to say to Kaiser, so say something, which is like, there is no, um, in the usual suspects, there is no way that you could know that 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 happened to the audience until the filmmaker tells you. You know, like they're withholding information from the audience, and and I find that to be frustrating. You know, like so I even though I like the usual suspects, but but like in a generalized sense, I, I would feel frustrated. I, I feel like if you can at least have enough of a have done enough of the the bread crumb laying that mm-hmm. maybe some amount of people will figure it out but like rather than make it something that zero human beings figure out because it's so out of left field i'm okay if like a certain amount right. of people figure it out in order for it to like feel honest i guess like to like oh yeah 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 because like yeah. bravo to the people that can figure that stuff out. I honestly watch, I watch you know detective stories, and I'm always the la- I'm always like, oh, <laughs> they did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I know what you mean about that idea of honesty because I do feel like sometimes, um, you know, people who make TV or or whatever get so invested in blindsiding the audience that they craft a story that's so tied in knots that it's like what what are you what are you even telling me <laughs> you know what i mean it's oh, just yeah. sort of like un, unreasonable and and you want the answer to be reasonable uh while still kind of uh, it's surprising you know, it still needs to be surprising but yeah. it, it, if, if it can be yeah. surprising and also be 
uh, like I said, like be, be something that you can process. Uh, you can go backwards and go like, oh, that's why that thing happened in episode three or whatever. Right. You know? Well, thank you, Craig. This is a total delight to chat with you. I really appreciate your time. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. So that was Craig. This is Richard and Joanna. Back to you to, I don't know, offer up some suspects. Do you have anyone new on your list this week, Richard? We got a couple emails about Faye, Frank's Mm -hmm. fiance, Mm -hmm. which I thought was kind of interesting. Those emails were really going off of the, the sort of twist last week that Frank was implicated as being the father of Aaron's kid. I think some of those questions at least have been sort of resolved in, by, in this episode. I mean, nothing conclusively, but like, he's like, yeah, give me the test. Like, whatever. Like I did hear, you know, his explanation for what happened actually kind of made sense if he's a caring person. Very believable. So yeah, I don't know right. if that's like, but, but if that's not true, or maybe even if they did suspect something was going on, sure. Maybe she was the vengeful one. And, but we don't really, we don't really know anything about her yet, really. Um, so I don't know, but I thought that theory was fun because why not? We should consider everyone. I am going to bring up someone that we we got another email about, um, and he's actually been on my list too. Um, so Peter wrote in and said, one thing I noticed is that when the two brothers, and this being like the cousins of Kenny, the Ross brothers, uh, when the two brothers are drinking together in the, later in the episode, John notices that Billy's acting kind of strange. So Billy is the one who's not married to Julia Nicholson. Um, and at Kenny's house, the camera seems to linger on Billy for a bit longer. And there seems to be something else he's thinking about. I think he may actually know or heard something about Frank being the father of Aaron's kid. It sort of lends to y'all's point about the clannish behavior split along gender lines in the town and how some of the men may have this awful secret they know amongst themselves. So Billy Ross is someone I have my eye on is someone who was like there in the pilot episode, but background enough that like, you're not paying enough attention to him, but he's kind of just been there. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So he is really high on my list. I have to say, um, and uh so i think i think and that and he's someone who i only suspected re-watching the episodes because the the moments that are linger on him are very small now this may be a completely other thing that he is feeling because he's clearly feeling some kind of stress if you rewatch it you can see this it might be something else entirely um that's classic for a show like this where like someone is acting really suspicious is because they know something some other secret not like i killed right. aaron mcmenamin so um just He's keep gay. an eye <laughs> <laughs> just to keep an eye on billy and actually someone suggested to me um i need to look up uh i might not have his name Lori's kid Lori's son right they've got two kids Lori and john have two kids um there's uh, the daughter who has Down syndrome, and then there's like the the slightly older brother who Mare has a conversation with in the first episode. And someone flagged to me that they thought the kid was actually really suspicious, mm. uh, which put, was just giving me like weird the undoing flashbacks that I don't know that I want to. I'm ready to go back. Um, but anyway, someone to flag, someone to look at, and how much do they look like ferrets. That's another question we have to ask ourselves. So. Um, you know, keep on the case, everyone. Please do keep sending your emails. They were so good. There were so yeah, many. We really appreciate they it. They were so good. Uh, still watching pod at gmail.com until episode four and us getting the answer to to what enter number two means. Uh, Richard, where can folks find you? 
I've got a gig at Swarthmore College Radio, so I got to oh. learn how to relearn how to play an instrument because I haven't played piano in about 15 years. So, so I got that to do, and I'll be tweeting from Rylan's writing at vf.com uh, until we head back to East Town next week. Savannah, where can people find you? Oh well, I will be uh, having a repeat engagement at Bryn Mawr. Um, oh, well, and, yeah, dancing in the fountain <laughs> like Catherine Hepburn. Um, and you can also find me at vanityfair.com. Follow me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Richard and I do another podcast for VF called Little Gold Men. Uh, we are finally out of the longest Oscar season of our life and onto something new. So uh, check us out there and we will see you all next week. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.